0: So this morning, we're finishing our series, Words for a New Year, where we're unpacking what I sense to be God's invitation for our faith community here in 2023, which is still weird to write on a piece of paper. And no, I didn't hear these words audibly. I didn't see them emblazoned on the clouds. But as I've prayed for you and for our church, this is what I sense is, is the spirit's directives for us in this upcoming season of life and ministry and we've distilled it down to three words, two of which we've already explored, and it's rest, reengage and reconcile. And last week's message was to re-engage with God and His body to again offer the whole of who we are to God in worship and to commit to one another as a spiritual family under the leadership of Jesus. And we spoke about reengaging with with worship and with growth and with confession and with this call to build one another up and to serve each other sacrificially. And we ended with that image of bringing to our gatherings both our, our pitcher and our wooden spoon, right? Because we are called not only to receive From the Lord, but we're also called to stir one another up to love and good works, to being sources for one another of encouragement and blessing, to be a community that is constantly pointing each other towards Jesus. So, as this call to re engage continues to resound within us, we're going to pay heed to our last word for 2023 which is reconcile. So what does it mean to reconcile? Well, if you look it up in a dictionary, a reconcile means to restore friendly relations between or to cause two parties to coexist in harmony. You break it apart, it literally means to bring back together again, to summon something back to unity. But we don't only have to go to the the dictionary to understand reconciliation. Reconciliation is like this rich, bold thread that runs throughout the the fabric, the tapestry of Scripture. And I'm going to just give you a glimpse of what Scripture, how Scripture helps us understand this word reconcile. Because reconciliation in Scripture, it's an image of the gospel, It says in Romans 5, 10 through 11, For if if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Much more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Paul summing up the whole gospel as this reconciliation of God and humanity. We see in Colossians one19 through twenty four in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. He's bringing back to Himself. All things. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. Reconciliation is part and parcel with the gospel, it's an image of the gospel. Reconciliation is also a fruit of the gospel. When Jesus first steps on the scene and John the Baptist is sent to be his forerunner, his, his predecessor, it says in scripture, he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers to make ready a people prepared. One of the fruits of God's work among us is the reconciliation of families. We also read in Ephesians, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For Jesus himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one New humanity, one new man in the place of two, so making peace. One of the fruits of the gospel of God's work in the world is that these divisions, these dividing walls that exist between individuals, between communities, between people groups, come down by the power of Christ's sacrifice. The other thing we learn about reconciliation in scripture is that forgiveness which is kind of the first step of reconciliation seems to be a condition of the gospel we read this in Matthew this is the words of Jesus he teaches us to pray and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors A couple verses later, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Reconciliation is a fruit of the gospel. It seems to be a condition of the gospel. It seems to be an image of the gospel. So I think it is worthy of our attention. It is worthy of hearing Christ's call to reconcile on us. And as I've meditated on this word, as I've reflected, as I've wrestled, I keep coming back to this little passage. I started out my year reading a book called Sit, Walk, Stand by a Chinese believer from early 20th century named Watchman Ni. It's a little book, it's super encouraging, but as i wrestled with this, I can't get away from this little passage, so bear with me. I want to read you a portion of his insight, his testimony, as he's wrestled with these topics. Brother Nee writes, he says, Since the day that Adam took the fruit of the tree of knowledge, man has been engaged in deciding what is good and what is evil natural man has worked out his own standards of right and wrong, justice and injustice, and striven to live by them. Of course, as Christians, we are different. Yes, but in what way are we different? Since we were converted, a new sense of righteousness has been developed in us. And as of the result, that we too are quite rightly occupied with the question of good and evil. But have we realized that for us, the starting point is a different one? Christ, our focal point. For us, the tree is the tree of life. We do not begin from the matter of ethical right and wrong. We do not start from that other tree. We begin from him. And the whole question for us is one of life. Nothing has done greater damage to our Christian testimony than our trying to be right and demanding right of others. We've become preoccupied with what is and what is not right. We ask ourselves, have we been justly or unjustly treated? And we think thus to vindicate our actions. But that's not our standard. The whole question for us is one of cross-bearing. You ask me, is it right for someone to strike my cheek? I reply, of course not. But the question is, do you want to only be right? As Christians, our standard of living can never be right or wrong, but the cross. The principle of the cross is our principle of conduct. Praise God that he makes his Son to shine on the evil and the good. With him, it is a question of his grace. And not of right and wrong. But that is to be our standard also. Forgiving each other even as God also in Christ forgave you. Right or wrong is the principle of the Gentiles and the tax collectors. My life is to be governed by the principle of the cross. And the perfection of the father. And he quotes a passage from Matthew. You therefore shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And he ends this thought with a little testimony from his own congregation in South China. He says a brother in South China had a rice field in the middle of a hill. In a time of drought, he used a water wheel worked by a treadmill to lift water from the irrigation stream to his field. His neighbor had two fields below his and one night made a breach in the dividing bank and drained off all his water. When the brother repaired the breach and pumped in more water, his neighbor did the same thing again. And this was repeated three or four times. So this Christian believer consulted his Christian community. I've tried to be patient and not retaliate, he said. But is it right? After they had prayed together about it, one of them replied, if we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. The brother was much impressed. Next morning, he pumped water for the two fields below, and in the afternoon, pumped water for his own field. After after that, the water stayed in his field. His neighbor was so amazed at his action that he began to inquire the reason. And in course of time, he too became a Christian. I read that long, extended quote to you because we're going to talk about reconciliation, but if you come at it from this frame of right or wrong, you're going to miss the gospel in the midst of it. What motivates our reconciliation? Well, our call, our motivation is to love others as Christ has loved us. It's an overwhelming, extravagant grace. It's not what we deserved. It's grace. That's why we read in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We love because he first loved us. John will go on to say, by this way we know that we are in Jesus. 1 John 2, 5-6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And how did Jesus walk? He hung on that cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not wrestling with right or wrong in that moment. They're wrong. But he shows grace. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So our motivation is to love Others, like Jesus has loved us. But there's also some, there's consequences to unforgiveness, of of refusing to be Christ's ambassadors of reconciliation. And I think we can give a a psychological answer to this and a biblical one. The psychological one, and I'm going to quote from a a Christian um, therapist who writes this, her name is Amanda Rowett. She says, Unforgiveness is a state of emotional and mental distress that results from a delayed response in forgiving an offender. It's characterized by indignation, bitterness, and a demand for punishment or restitution. Unforgiveness creates a domino effect that negatively impacts every part of us, including our emotions, our thoughts, our behaviors, body, spirit, and relationships. With unforgiveness, time does not heal all wounds. In fact, time further worsens and infects emotional pain. Unforgiveness is like carrying around a huge weight. The longer we carry a grudge, the heavier the burden becomes. In the absence of a timely response, the roots of unforgiveness only go deeper, further entangling us, and some feeding. On unforgiveness is toxic. That is very much in step. What scripture identifies. As the negative consequences of unforgiveness. In scripture we see that. One of the consequences is. You're no longer abiding. There's the loss. Of a walk with God. And again, I'm gonna just let a lot of scripture wash over you this morning. 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. The other thing, unforgiveness causes in our life is this loss of health and vitality. David, talking about his unconfessed, unrepented of sin, says, blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom God, the Lord, counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For night and day, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And that life, that vitality, that burden was lifted. That's what unconfessed, unrepented of sin causes. And unforgiveness is exactly that. It's a sin of omission. It is refusing to love how Christ calls us to love. It is refusing to release to our Heavenly Father that which he invites us to release. And it's even something that we see Paul warns us about every time we come to the communion table. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven 27-30. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so that they may eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body... This is discerning the unity of our community, how we are one in Christ and what is going on in our relationships together, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Unforgiveness drains our health and vitality. It also causes a loss of joy. Hebrews calls it a root of bitterness that springs up and causes trouble. And it says, by many have become defiled by this. We hear in Proverbs, better a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened oxen in hatred with it. Unforgiveness, refusing to be a reconciler in the power of Jesus drains our joy. And the last thing we lose is our distinctiveness as the being transformed people of God. Again, listen to Jesus in Matthew 5. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles, the nations that don't know me, do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect. You must be whole and complete as your heavenly Father is perfect, as he is whole and complete. If we refuse To reconcile, if we refuse to forgive, we lose that abiding with Christ. We lose our well-being. We lose our joy. We lose what marks us as the people for whom the spirit of the living God is at work. But I also want to say what reconciliation is not. Reconciliation does not mean putting yourself in a dangerous situation. Reconciliation does not mean that you can't practice healthy, life-giving boundaries. Reconciliation is not actually something that is unilateral. It takes two to tango, but forgiveness and release does not. That can be just you and the Lord. Indeed, I want to do a little reflection on forgiveness, a little primer, a little lesson. I've heard it taught that there is both a crisis and a process to forgiveness, and both need the working of God in us to take place. And again, for this formulation, I'm going to lean on a guy named Everett Worthington, who's a renowned Christian uh, psychologist at VCU at Virginia Commonwealth University. And he articulates it this way. The crisis of forgiveness begins with a decision, an act of will. It's this unilateral choice to release a person from the obligation or the debt that resulted when he or she injured you. It's a decision to act without malice towards someone who's offended you, to to swear off vengeance, to refuse to get even, or even to fantasize ill against that person. It's choosing to forgive and to treat the person as someone who bears the image of God, albeit a, a corrupted image. It's It's to treat them as someone for whom Christ died. Because after all, they are. That's the crisis of forgiveness. The choice of your will to forgive, to release it to the Lord. To treat them as someone for whom Christ dearly loved and gave everything. The process of forgiveness is partnering with the work of God's spirit in our lives as he replaces those negative, unforgiving emotions with his positive, other-oriented, Christ-reflecting emotions such as empathy and sympathy and compassion and even love. The process of forgiveness will require you to walk out your decision to forgive. It will probably involve you praying for the person who's hurt you. It will involve putting some substance behind your release of that individual. That means not bringing it up to the person. It's not bringing up the offense to others. It's even not bringing up the offense to yourself. Refusing to dwell on it and to constantly replay how they've hurt you in your own head. Forgive. It is a crisis, it's a decision, and it's a process. So how do we reconcile with one another? How do we start to walk this out? We know it begins with forgiveness, but where does it go from there? And again, we're going to turn to the teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew It's a familiar text from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, But I say to you that everyone being angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. I think Jesus is diagnosing a vicious cycle that we often get stuck in. We get angry. And then we insult one another, and then it just spirals downward into bitterness, into unforgiveness, into resentment. And I think Jesus knows the true corruption of our human hearts. It's such that an angry person would actually harm someone if they could just get away from with it if they could avoid the negative consequences he identifies this downward spiral that begins with anger and ends with murder and he says instead of getting sucked into that destructive vortex he says spin the cycle backwards participate in god's transforming initiative in this instance, he says, Engage me through the regular practice of reconciliation. And I say that word practice intentionally because Jesus is talking about concrete actions, not just our moral convictions, our vague intentions, our inner attitudes. He's saying this is practice. This is practical working out of reconciliation. It's actively and tangibly participating in God's way of grace. And he outlines it this way. He says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then, coming, offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accusers. If you read this passage in its original language, you'll notice that there are five commands, five imperatives here in this text. Jesus says, Leave. He says, Go. He says, Be reconciled. He says, Offer your gift. And he says, make friends. It's this little outline, this practical outline of reconciliation. We'll start there with leave. I think that's such an interesting instruction because he's he's calling us to disrupt our worship, our right and proper response to God. He says, no, 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 no. Disunity, disagreement, dissension between brothers and sisters is such a significant issue That he's waving his hands and he's saying, stop trying to come to me without dealing with this first. It reminds me of the prophet Malachi where he goes and says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors to the temple, to the church, that you might not kindle a fire upon my altar in vain. He says, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. I will not accept an offering from your hands. Shut the doors. Stop the music. My people have work to do. And if they refuse to engage on this, if they refuse to forgive, if they refuse to reconcile, nothing they do in here matters. It's just honoring me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So he says, if you know this issue, stop, leave (laughs) The worship service. Then he says, Go. We recall the hurt, but notice that Jesus doesn't say, Hey, excavate your wounds and your disagreements with others. Consider and meditate on how they've hurt you and make sure those issues get addressed. He actually starts on the opposite end of the experience spectrum. We don't start at, Hey, this is how you hurt me. We start at, Hey, I have a sense I may have hurt you. I sense some action of mine you might be perceiving as a violation or a betrayal. I'm sorry. I discern a rift between us. Can we talk about it? Can we clear the air? Can we make things right? He says, go to the person that you know has an issue with you. Reengage them for the purpose in the hope of reconciliation. Then he just says, be reconciled. Doesn't give us much to go on. He just says, get it done. But in light of other scriptures, I think this is how I would expand upon Christ's command. Maybe the practicalities of be reconciled. First, it's better To first listen carefully rather than to begin by accusing or by stating your position. Remember James, beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. First, listen carefully. Second, it's better to point to my own problem. Saying, for example, I, I feel hurt by something you said Rather than to speak judgmentally, something like, you often insult me. Notice it's I statements versus you statements. Because Jesus instructs us to to take the log out of our own eye before trying to pick the speck from someone else's. But also, remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 when he's talking about the love that exists within the Christian community. He says, love bears all things. Love hopes all things. It believes all things. It endures all things. This means we give one another the benefit of the doubt. We offer them the most charitable assessment, not the least charitable assessment. We love them how we would want to be loved. We approach others how we would want to be approached. To listen carefully, begin by pointing to your own problems. And then remember, it is not our job in reconciliation to defend ourselves. The Lord is our hope and our vindication, He is the one that upholds our reputation. It's not our concern to defend ourselves at every turn. And when we release that to Jesus, it allows us to be freed up to engage with what we can engage with. And it's the example that Jesus gave us at his own trial. What was said of him? Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He did not seek to defend his own reputation. He trusted God to vindicate. He was in the business of reconciliation. So refusing to mount our own defense, we own what we need to own from past interactions. We confess our sins where we failed to love, where we failed to put another's needs above our own, where we failed to show the kindness and the grace of Christ. And we apologize. And if possible, we pray for one another. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person. And hear that correctly. The prayer of a person who's being made right by Jesus is powerful and effective. It has great power in its working. Jesus is listening, and he is answering, and he is working in places of reconciliation because that is his gospel. And then last, at times for true reconciliation to happen, restitution needs to be made. Maybe this means a healthy boundary needs to be established Or if it's in your power to do so, a wrong needs to be made right. I think of the story of uh, the tax collector Zacchaeus. His story of repentance and transformation when he encountered Jesus. We read this in the Gospel of Luke. "And, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Well, God's grace had covered his sin and he'd been reconciled to God in order for him to be reconciled to his community, to tangibly act out his repentance. He had to do what was in his power to make restitution, to restore a portion of what he had taken from his neighbors. And then, having done the hard work in the raw work of reconciliation, Jesus instructs us to race back to the Lord's presence, to offer our gift, to praise him, to process that whole journey with him. Return to him in worship. Come to the one who reconciled you to God and throw yourself on his mercy and say, please, Lord, by your power, Make this reconciliation a reality. Take down those dividing walls of hostility and make us one. Forgive us our debts. And then he says, the last command is to make friends with our accusers, which is something only the power of God can accomplish. And know this, if... if Praying for those who curse you, if being kind and compassionate to those who oppose you is difficult, don't just try to try harder. Sounds counterintuitive. It's not a question of effort. Instead, bring it to the Lord. Say, God, try as I might. I don't have this in me. To love this person who's wounded me. So you're going to have to just replace it. You're going to have to take my negative, unforgiving emotions and give me your forgiving, gracious, long-suffering heart. I can't try harder. This has to be a supernatural work that you do through me. And those are the exact sorts of prayers that Jesus thrills to answer. So this is our last word for 2023. Rest, reengage, reconcile. And I'll be honest, this is the one that was most surprising to me as I kept praying through it. But maybe he knows better than I do. Maybe there are old hurts or some battle wounds from these last three tumultuous years. Maybe there's baggage and pain that comes from an earlier season in your life that you're carrying that is draining you of abiding in God. Your health and vitality, it's, it's proving toxic. And I think the Lord says, hey before we can go out and, and do great things, before God can use us, we've got to deal with this. So reconcile with one another. And again, it takes two to tango, but you can begin by forgiving, by that crisis of forgiveness, that process of forgiveness, and you can begin by being Jesus' ambassador of reconciliation, of leaving this place and going to that person and doing all that's within your power to reconcile. And then he says, come back and celebrate. Then come back and worship. Then come back and experience all I have for you and that I want to accomplish through you. But first, be reconciled. Amen? Well, the worship team is going to come up and close us in song, but let me pray for us. Dear God, we know that forgiveness, reconciliation is something that is holy by your power. We can muster goodwill, God, but our resources are limited. But you are the reconciling God. You are the all forgiving one. You are the one whose grace has changed not only our lives, but our futures, but changed the very fabric of the universe. So be with us as we seek healing, as we seek restoration of relationships, maybe even as we seek reconciliation with you. Bring us back to unity with people, with the God who created us. And thank you that it is only possible by your power, by what you did on the cross through the empty tomb. So we say thank you and we say yes. Holy Spirit, do your work in us, through us, and among us. Reconcile us together under God. Amen.